Heavenly Father, we come before you today so aware of your awesomeness. We focused on that in this service, on your true greatness. And uh, we thank you that we can never use enough superlatives to describe you. You are great and terrible and awesome and amazing and incredible. We can't fathom your greatness. But we thank you that you chose to reveal yourself to us, little people. That you revealed yourself to us that we might be saved. And not just saved, but changed too. Not just saved from hell, but saved from who we were and who we were becoming through the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your love and grace, and we pray that at this time when we open your word, that our hearts would be stirred, honestly, Lord, not by my words, but by your Spirit, that you would write your word in fleshly tables of our heart, that we would respond to your Holy Spirit, to the written word of God, as we all focus on the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. God knows your dreams and everything else too. Uh, I'm not going to talk about dreams because I get strange phone calls when I do, but <laughs> some of you know what that's about. But we're looking in Daniel chapter 2. Hopefully you have a Bible with you. If you don't have one with you, scoot next to somebody if you can and share. And Daniel chapter 2. And... We're going to read scripture in just a minute, but let me give you an introduction uh, to it. What, the first thing I want you to think about today is God speaks every language. Every language. He understands the gibberish of a child who can't yet speak right. God understands the yearning of our heart when we can't even articulate it. God understands every language. And... Uh, for the most part, the Old Testament was written in what language? Hebrew, originally. Originally in Hebrew, but in the New Testament, mostly in Greek. But parts of Ezra, a significant part of Daniel, and, and uh, parts of other passages of Scripture are written in Aramaic. Part of the Gospels are in Aramaic. Uh, Dan from Daniel chapter 2 and verse 4 until the end of chapter 7, it's actually in a different language. He starts out in Hebrew, he switches to Aramaic, and then he goes back to Hebrew. And it's Aramaic or Syriac is still the common, was the common language still when Jesus lived in Israel. It's interesting that Daniel wrote in two different languages, but it's not theologically significant. It's not like, ooh, the Hebrew, wow. And the Aramaic, man, not so big. No, it's all the Word of God. It's not theologically significant. And there's no spiritual reason why he changed languages. Some of you are fluent in some of you are fluent in <laughs> multiple languages. I'm almost fluent in English, but not quite. But, but some of you do. I have a friend. I was sitting at, at lunch with this friend, and we're having this conversation in English, and somebody spoke to him in Spanish, and he rattled off an answer in Spanish and turned back to me, started speaking in Spanish. I got that deer in the headlights look, you know? And, and so he, he switched back to English, but he can just switch back and forth so quickly, amazingly. 
Daniel was multilinguist. He not only spoke Hebrew and Aramaic, he did that before he ever went to Babylon. But then in Babylon, they taught him the language of the Chaldeans and Babylonians and other languages. Daniel was gifted in languages. So it's not a surprise that he spoke in one and then the other and then back to the one. Um, God has no trouble understanding any language. Kathy Bird jokes that she's trilingual. She speaks English passably. She speaks Bird fluently. And, and she speaks Texan, which is not really English. I've lived there. It, it's not. Uh, but, but God understands all of this, and he speaks through his word that today has been translated into more than 2,000 languages. And you and I have helped one of those language translations. We've helped sponsor a translation of the scripture into the Huichol language for tribal peoples in Mexico. And we have a part in that, and that's pretty exciting. And, and so God speaks through thousands of languages, and any person on the planet, when they go to God in prayer, he can understand them, whether it's their heart language or another language, or they can't even express themselves. God understands. So some people try and make a big deal out of why Daniel switched languages. And you know what the Bible says? He switched languages because he switched languages. That's all. It's not theologically significant. What he says in Hebrew and in Aramaic, those are theologically significant, but the language he used is not. So second thing is that God is actively involved with his creation, and especially with people who love and follow him. We began this chapter last week. We were looking at Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king. Nebuchadnezzar worships himself. Can you imagine a politician worshiping himself? Aren't you glad we didn't live back then? Woo! Woo! Uh, and, and so Nebuchadnezzar worships himself. He focuses on himself, wants the attention all on himself. We'll see that even more in chapter 3. But he has this dream. Because the God of heaven heard the meandering in Nebuchadnezzar's heart as he was wondering about the future, and God chose to reveal to him. Because God is connected. The deists believe that God got things started and then he just kind of walked away and said, good luck with that, and he moved on. That's not what happened. Every fraction of every second of every moment in every place, God is immediately and intensely and intimately and purposefully involved in His creation. Now, there are times when it doesn't feel like He is, isn't there? When you've had your heart broken when you face huge hardships, it doesn't feel like God is intimately and immediately connected, but He is. Every time in Scripture, when people cried out to the Lord, God heard every time, and He still does today. 
he allowed Daniel to be taken captive and kidnapped and hauled off to Babylon. He allowed Nebuchadnezzar to have the success in Israel to accomplish that and then later to go back and, and fully conquer. Daniel was probably taken away about 605 uh, B.C. to 607 B.C. and then uh, they finally uh, completely conquered Israel in 586 B.C., a few years later. God made sure that Daniel met every criteria to be chosen in that group of young men who would have education and, and opportunities to serve. And he made sure Daniel and the others with him, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he made sure that the four of them thrived through that training and were the most successful of all the students. In Chapter 1 and verse 17, it says he gave Daniel the gift of interpretation of dreams and placed him in exactly the right time and the right place at the right moment in history to be able to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel was a prince of Israel, but he'd lost his job and was taken captive to Babylon. But God was still with him every day and everywhere. Love what the psalmist said. Where can I go to flee from your presence? And everywhere he could think of and describe, God was already there. We have a vivid illustration of that in Jonah. God said, Jonah, I want you to go over there. And Jonah said, I heard you, Lord, but I'm going over there. And God said, oh, no, you're not. And God brought him back, probably a little whiter than he was when he left. After spending three days in the belly of a fish and those stomach... A anyway, all right. You got your Bible? Let's talk about your Bible instead of stomachs of fish, okay? Look, uh, let's look at how God chooses to reveal Himself. Um, last week, we looked at the uh, pronouncement being given by Nebuchadnezzar that all of the wise men would be put to death unless they could interpret the dream. And so in verse 24, Daniel went to Arioch. And by the way, Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah prayed together. And then now God gave him an answer. And so now Daniel has the answer and he goes back to Arioch. Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to the king, I have found a man of the captains of Judah. Does that sound funny? Daniel found Arioch. Arioch didn't find Daniel, but Arioch takes credit for it. You know what? That's okay. Don't stress if other people take credit for your work. God knows the truth. Just trust God. That's what Daniel did. I have found a man of the captains of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, Arioch has just pronounced this. And, and before we read this next verse, picture Arioch's face. Arioch comes in, he says to the king, I have found a man and he will give you the interpretation. And then Daniel walks in and listen to what Daniel first says. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, uh, we talked about that weeks ago. They changed his name from meaning uh, Jehovah, talk, focusing on Jehovah and our God. Uh, he focused on the, the, one of the gods of, of Egypt, of Babylon, sorry. So 
Nebuchadnezzar said, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And now picture Arioch standing over here. Ready? And Arioch hears Daniel say this. The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. Stop right there for a moment. Here's Arioch. I brought Daniel in. Nebuchadnezzar says, are you able to say the dream? And Arioch's expecting Daniel to say, I got it, man. And Daniel says, nobody can do that. Now, Arioch's before the king. The king said, we're going to kill all those wise men. Arioch did not. And now, Arioch's in an awkward place, isn't he? And I, I, in my brain, I picture this pause before Daniel says the second thing. The scripture doesn't say there was a pause, but there could have been. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days. I want you to focus upon Daniel. And uh, so skip down with me, please, to verse 30. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes who make known to the interpret. I'm sorry, for our sakes who make known the interpretation to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. So he says, it's not my greatness. Daniel is a man of great humility. Great humility. This is a picture, an artist's rendering of what Babylon might have looked like. You see the river flowing through Babylon and that's how the Medes, they diverted the water so that they could then walk in through the, the floodgate and conquer the city. But that doesn't happen at this point in the story. That doesn't happen for at least another 60 to 70 years before that would occur. Uh, but Daniel, the Chaldeans were proud. Among them, Nebuchadnezzar the king was a proud, boastful, arrogant king. But Daniel was not. Arioch over here, he took credit for finding Daniel. But Daniel takes no credit for this. Well, let me tell you, I know a lot of pastors, and I've read a lot of pastors. I've listened to a lot of messages uh, online on po podcasts and, and videos, and some of those guys act like they are God's answer for people. No, I saw one on television years ago. Kathy and I were visiting a friend, and he and I turned this thing on television, and it was one of those faith healers. And he was wearing a pearl white suit against the backdrop of, of the night sky and all the stars. And he said, when I was a child, the Lord raised me up into the heavens, and he showed me the stars. And he said, these are the number of the souls you'll win for me. And then he held his hand up to the TV and he said, if you will touch my hand on your TV, God will heal you. Well, our wives were pretty annoyed that we were watching that. And so they had kids. We didn't. I think Kathy and Phyllis took the kids into another room so they wouldn't have to hear the craziness on TV. And Steve and I looked at each other and we like raced to the TV to see who could get there first. <laughs> And we got there at the same time, and miraculously, the TV didn't slam against the wall. 
And we both put our hands on that screen, and then we were laughing about it. And we were both violently sick with the flu for three days. (laughs) And guess what? Our wives were not sympathetic. (laughs) But listen, we want to get credit, right? Oh, the Lord spoke to me, and I have a message for you, you little people out there. You follow me. No. See, the goal of a pastor is say, you follow Jesus. And, and I like what Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. With the understanding that if, if he ever seeks to draw attention to himself and not the Lord, then he's out. I love James, the brother of Jesus. Couldn't James have said, listen, I watched him grow up. I was around when he first got his whiskers. But James didn't. You know what James said? I'm a bond servant of Jesus Christ, my Lord, not my brother. He was the half-brother of Jesus. He was the son of Joseph and Mary. Jesus was the son of Mary and God birthed by the Holy Spirit in a miracle. Uh, and James was a natural birth. And James could have said that. Jude could have said, listen, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, and you got to listen to me. In fact, the way Jude starts his little epistle, it makes it sound like he was planning to write a gospel, and I wonder if he would have filled in the gaps of what Jesus was like when he was a kid. But the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. The Holy Spirit urged him to write a different letter, challenging and urging the churches to be true, to follow the Lord. See, it, Daniel said, it's not me, king. I don't want you to follow me. It's God. And there is a God in heaven. Aren't you glad? That's what Daniel wanted to tell the king. It's not me. The king had relied upon his wise men and astrologers and magicians and soothsayers. But look at verse 27. Daniel said, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, cannot declare to the king. So Daniel declares them incompetent and incapable of true wisdom. Because true wisdom comes only from God. There is a God in heaven, and we need to let people know that. We need to share that in our community. Nebuchadnezzar was wondering about the future, verse 29 says. He was wondering, uh, as for you, O king, thoughts came into your mind while you were on your bed about what would come to pass after this, and he who reveals secrets has made this known to you what will be. He was wondering about the future, and God chose to reveal the future to him. There is a God in heaven. We sometimes forget that in the difficulty of our day, in the trials of life, we forget there is a God in heaven. So when somebody gets the promotion we should have had, or we are unfairly uh, let go from a job, or we have a health problem and somebody else doesn't, or we have the same health problem and God heals them and, and we are allowed to suffer and languish with it. I've seen people miraculously healed of cancer. I've also preached funerals for people who weren't. God is in control. God rules. And there is a God in heaven. 
and he's not you. We submit to God. Then Daniel kind of walks him through the dream so that he can tell him about the dream. I have an artist's guess of what the image might have looked like. Um, I don't know if you... You probably see the color difference there. Okay, so I'll just shut up and read, okay? <laughs> if you're new here, I am colorblind, so sometimes I say weird things. That's not the only reason, but... <laughs> Verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold... A great image. How big? I don't know. Great. It's a big one. When the Bible uses the word great, it means great. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that stuck the image I'm sorry, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So that's the, the dream. And then Daniel gives the interpretation of that. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. And so far, Nebuchadnezzar's really into this. You are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, strength, and power, uh, and glory. Kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't think he got that from God. We'll see later in this book where Nebuchadnezzar says, Look what I have done, what I have accomplished. And God says, Oh, yeah? <laughs> and, and there's a big change. But God gave him that. If you wonder if God is working your life, try this, right? Exhale, now inhale. That's a gift from God. The fact that you can breathe in Him, we live and move and have our being. To breathe is a gift from God. Even those of you who breathe with difficulty, it's still a gift from God to be able to breathe. So God gave him all this. Verse 38, And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Now, he was ruler over their known world. There were parts of the world not ruled by Babylon, but they were further removed. He, he ruled over what today would be uh, all of modern-day Iran and Iraq and Israel and Jordan and Palestine and northern Africa, all of the Middle East and all of northern Africa. That was all his domain. He ruled over all of that, possibly as far as India. He had a huge kingdom. And verse 39, But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours. Nebuchadnezzar probably likes that too. Oh yeah, the next guy won't be as good as me. Then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. 
And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things, and the like I'm sorry, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of the men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever." Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. So we know very clearly what was the gold, the golden head of this image? Nebuchadnezzar. How do we know that? Because the Bible exactly says that. Now we have some ideas of who the other kingdoms are. After the golden head, the very next kingdom to take over was Medo-Persia. And it's interesting that the silver is split into the two arms. Some suggest that's because the Medes and the Persians were never fully united. Uh, they were a bit separated. But the silver, the brass, the Medo-Persian kingdom uh, was from about 539 to 330 B.C. The bronze, the belly, the thigh, the Grecian kingdom, uh, they had all kinds of things made of bronze and uh, that was from 330 to about 63 B.C. And then the iron was the Roman Empire from about 63 B.C. to around 475 or so, A.D. 475. The two legs, the empire divided into the east, or the east and then the west, and then uh, the, the toes uh, mingled with clay. The Roman Empire never fully died. We're still significantly impacted by the foundation of the Roman Empire. Uh, some suggest there'll be a revival of the Roman Empire. And uh, later on in Daniel in chapter 7, there's another vision of kingdoms and, and the, that there would be 10 nations. Some thought it was going to be the European Federation, uh, but there's more than 10 nations in that group. Uh, one of the nations could be the U.S., uh, could be the significant nations on planet Earth today, would be those 10 nations. But we, we build our hope in nations. Uh, throughout history, people have loved and, and built their hopes in nations, and some of them have lasted for hundreds of years. But every great nation is now a fallen nation. So the nations that are great today, at some point, won't be. Now, I, I think within my lifetime this will happen, but my great-grandpa thought it was within his lifetime too, and he's been with the Lord since 1966 or 67. I don't remember. He, he passed away and went to be with the Lord. So I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime or not, but I really think it will. 
and, and that stone that's cut out uh, by Jesus, some suggest that the, this was the birth of Jesus Christ and that now his kingdom is growing on the earth. But that's not the way this image is laid out. And the way it's laid here, it was uh, that there was sudden uh, conquering, a demolishing of the other kingdoms. Uh, so when Jesus was being interrogated by Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. But at some point, there will be his kingdom on the earth. We believe in the imminent rapture of the church, the catching up where we're caught up to be with the Lord. He doesn't come down to planet earth. He shows up in the air. He calls us to be with him. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And there's coming a time at the second coming when he actually comes down to earth. He's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split. The scriptures describe in Revelation 16 and 19 that he is going to rule with the rod of iron. There's going to be the battle of Armageddon and all the kingdoms of the earth will be conquered and Jesus will rule. For a thousand years, at the end of those thousand years, Satan will be loosed for a short time to stir up the nations. And as many as 200 million soldiers will march against the Lord in Israel, in Jerusalem, where Christ will reign. And the scripture says, fire will come down from heaven and consume them all. And then shortly after that, uh, the scriptures describe the elements melting with fervent heat and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and the eternal kingdom where we will live and worship the Lord forever and there will be no more death and no more sin, not in our actions and not in our hearts because God rules. I do not believe we are ushering in the kingdom. The scriptures declare that the God of heaven will set up his kingdom suddenly and without help, as Pastor David Jeremiah said, Christ will come back when he is ready, and he will set up his kingdom without our help. That stone crashed and destroyed the image. All of the layers, every kingdom of man demolished. So, what's the conclusion here? What should we really remember? God is Sovereign. Look back at verse 20. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wide and knowledge wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. God is sovereign. We could say that another way. He rules and he makes the rules. He is sovereign. He rules and he makes the rules. The bulletin verse, Isaiah 46, For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. God is in charge. God is trustworthy. God knows your dreams and everything else too. Someday, when you're going through a bad day, I want you to think in your head, someday you will praise God for this day. You can turn, I'm going to read, you can go there with me if you'd like, Hebrews chapter 11. 
If it's hard for you to switch over there, just listen and I'll read some verses to you. Hebrews chapter 11. This is sometimes called the roll call of faith. The chapter of faith deals with people who walk by faith, who honored God, and some thrived and some suffered. And, and we want to be the thriving ones, don't we? But who rules? Who makes the rules? Not you, not me. Believe me, if I had the control over it, a lot of you would have been saved from difficulties that I've known about, financial and physical and emotional and medical. But you see, God uses those circumstances to make you more like Christ. So if God had given me that healing power and I had healed you from all of those struggles, I would have hurt you, not helped you. Because God works through our difficulties, not just through our blessings. So we're in Hebrews chapter 11, look in verse 33. He's talking about different people who've been successful. And verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the enemies. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Stop. Man, wouldn't it be great to be on that team? You go into the game and you know before they blow the first whistle, you're going to stomp the other guys. You're going to win because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. So you can take them on. Yeah, but it doesn't end there, does it? See, in the middle of verse 35, and others. Hey, welcome to the others. That includes you. Listen to what happened to some of the others. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yea, of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and caves of the earth. Some days feel like you're one of the others, don't they? God knows your circumstances. He understands your circumstances. And He is trustworthy. While you're still in Hebrews 11, look up at verse 13, talking about these faithful people. These all died in faith. That's very important. In faith. They had believed and trusted the Lord, not having seen the promises, but having seen them afar off and were assured of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. 
But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, uh, Daniel might not have had the opportunity to pray and receive that wisdom from the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar might have said, put them all to death. And when Daniel went before the king to ask for a variance, a delay from the king's decree, the king might have said, why is he still alive? Put him to death and kill the guy who brought him in here. That would be consistent with the behavior of Nebuchadnezzar in other circumstances. But see, God delivered. And we love stories of God's deliverance. But guess what? Death is deliverance. Death is all the pains and sorrow of this life are gone. And we'll be with the Lord in a new body. Cool, huh? Do you wonder how tall we'll be? How short we'll be? I think we'll all be short, fat, and bald. <laughs> the Bible doesn't say. It doesn't want us to speculate. Kathy and I listened to a sermon once. This guy went on and on about how in heaven we'll all be 33 years old. Because Jesus was 33. Well, yeah, he was 33 for part of his life, but he was other ages before he got to 33, right? We don't know. But this we know. Death is deliverance for those who have received Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Apostle Paul said, to die and go to heaven is better than to suffer with life on earth. But God leaves us here so that we can minister to other people. And we need to remember that. Death is not to be feared. The Scripture says God... Uh, the verse just slipped out of my head. But in, in Ecclesiastes, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. I think that's, I don't, I'm not going to say what, chap, what chapter, but it's in Ecclesiastes. The day of one's death is better. And the scriptures declare that, that God uh, has joy in the death of his saints. Not because they suffered, but because death is the doorway to go home. I love going home. I love working here at the church. It's a blessing. But you know, after 11, 12 hours yesterday, um, I decided it was time to go home. I walked home and I went in and it just felt good. And after my shower, I even smelt good. We want deliverance now, but God sometimes allows us to suffer, but he does bring deliverance. When we are with the Lord, all the pain and sorrow and suffering of this life will, in a way, be forgotten, but in another way, be appreciated, because we will see how those twists and turns and pains and hurts made us more like Jesus Christ. So now we're in the presence of the one we've been trying to look like ever since we trusted him as Savior. And all those hurts and pains that made us look more like him, we will rejoice in them in that day. He is doing a great spiritual work within you. 
like the master sculptor who's hacking away at a block of marble to reveal a beautiful statue. So God is producing a masterpiece in you. God is at work in your life and in our world. I often say He is at work on you, in you, through you, and for you. God is at work. Great things, excuse me, great things are happening. On your worst day, you can remember that someday you will praise God for this day. The worst day of your life. You will someday thank God for this day because he'll let you understand how it worked. Let's take just a brief vignette. Let's go back to Passover week. Let's go back to when Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples, and he takes the bread and he said, this represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. And this uh, juice, the fruit of the vine, represents uh, my blood, which is going to be shed for you. And the disciples are trying to understand it, and they don't quite understand it. And they go out, for, and the soldiers come, and Peter whips out his sword and attacks. I like Peter. A hundred soldiers show up, and Peter goes all marine on him, you know? He's going to take them all out. And Jesus said, stop it. And he picks up that ear off Malchus, and he puts it back on, and he can hear again. He miraculously heals the guys who are coming to arrest him. And then the disciples, Jesus was the deliverer. They're expecting him to go before Pilate and then reveal himself in all his glory. And the awe of Rome would bow down before their Lord. That's not what happened. He died on a cross. A thief on this side, a thief on that side, Jesus in the middle. Dying like a common criminal. And the scripture said they fled. They forsook him and fled. And then when they gathered back together, they gathered in fear. They had the doors all locked in fear because they knew that, that the enemy, the Roman soldiers, were going to come and arrest them. The Sadducees and the temple priests, they were going to push to annihilate them. And, and they were cowering in fear. And, and imagine the dread that they had. All of their hopes and dreams shattered in blood on the cross. And they gather together. And they're talking about it. They're wondering what they should do. And Jesus shows up in the middle of them. He doesn't say Shazam or anything like that. He just shows up. And in that moment, it went from sorrow to joy from the worst time of their life to the greatest day in the history of the world. He is risen! And we celebrate that today. In fact, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. That's why we meet on Sunday instead of on Saturday. When you're having a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day, remember that someday you will praise God for this day. Less than two months after they were cowering in fear, they were already rejoicing. They were preaching, and thousands came to trust Christ. And they were saying, praise God that He died for us. 
and that he's risen, and that he rules, and that he reigns. He is sovereign, and we can trust him even on the worst days of our lives because he knows you. He knows what you're going through. He is not a high priest that cannot be touched, but he is stirred with the feeling of our hurts and pains and infirmities, Hebrews says. He cares. So, will you trust him? Has there been a time in your life when you have asked him to forgive your sins and save your soul? Have have you gone, gone through a hard week? Can you now say, God, I accept you as sovereign this week. I know you as Savior. I trusted you years ago, but I'm struggling to have faith today. Can you say, I choose to trust you today? Someday, you'll praise God for this day, even on the worst day of your life. I'm not very good with names. I get names mixed up. I rarely mix up Kathy's name, but occasionally I do that. That's why I usually call her babe. I don't have to remember her name. I call my kids by the wrong names sometimes. We had a friend here last week. She'd been in our house. Jess had been in their house. We knew her parents. Her dad was here with her. And, and I called her by the wrong name. I called her Alicia, and it's Alyssa. She was gracious. But listen, God never forgets your name. Your parents can forget your name. God won't. God knows everything about you. He even knows the bad stuff. And he loves you anyway. We're going to sing a song that's just kind of a little chorus. It's a short song, but it talks about the awesomeness of our God and his love toward us. And the title of the song is, He Knows My Name. And today, what we really must remember is that God rules and he's trustworthy. Because not only does he rule, but he cares, and he knows, and he heals. Sometimes in this life, sometimes in the life to come. But every problem you've ever had in your life will be beyond you someday by his glory and his grace. Let's stand and sing a song of praise to our God. If you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you should do that today. If you have a burden in your heart, a prayer concern, there's in the thing that has a spot for first-time guests to give us some information. On the backside, there's a place for you to write a prayer concern.